Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Chris Clow, editor of Reverse Mortgage Daily, to talk about the latest challenges and actions of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Matt Dowd, Vice President of Product Management at Ice Mortgage Technology, about mortgage automation. Matt, what are the keys to success for lenders to adopt this type of automation? I wish there was one simple answer, but if I'm going to break it down, I think there's three things lenders need to be uh, aware of. Having a defined set of goals up front, having the entire company behind the initiative, as well as having change management and continuous improvement. The message has to come from the top and it has to be crystal clear about the measurements and the KPIs you're looking to improve upon. The second, you have to have the entire company behind you. This is well beyond just an underwriter and a processor. You need to have good data going in to have good data coming out. And then finally, change management and continuous improvement. This isn't an easy button solution. So you need to continue to work with your processors and underwriters and figure out what's working, what's not working, and change and adapt while continuing to educate. Great points. And listeners, you can find out more at icemortgagetechnology.com. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me back, Sarah. I'm excited about our conversation today. So we're going to talk about the CFPB, and we have some some news about what they're doing. But we also have, uh, I want to back up a little bit, because there was some news about the constitutionality of the CFPB itself, which if you're a Housing Wire reader, aren't you like, wait a second, I thought we already decided this. I, th- I thought this is already a done deal. So can you can you walk us through what is going on with CFPB? What is this latest thing? What does it mean? Sure. So people who might remember uh, these kind of longstanding issues going back a couple of years, there was a case that was brought before the US Supreme Court from a law firm called SELA Law that uh, basically said that the CFPB as an agency runs afoul of constitutional requirements, particularly when it comes to the separation of powers uh, and the single director structure of the Bureau that uh, makes it really difficult for a president or an executive to remove the director of the CFPB is not appropriate. And uh, the Supreme Court agreed with that. And they said that the single director structure of the CFPB did run afoul of the separation of powers, but they stopped short of invalidating the existence of the agency, which some people hoped would happen. So instead, what you had was uh, the ability effectively for the president to be able to remove the CFPB director. And that was a decision that had implications that extended into the uh, the then impending inauguration of Joe Biden. So when when President Biden came into office, he asked uh, the current director of the CFPB at the time, Kathleen Craninger, to step aside, something he wouldn't have been able to do uh, if the decision had gone the other way. And that's also something that extended to the single director structure of other agencies. And that was also most visible with the FHFA, Mark Calabria, uh, was asked to to step aside as well once uh, well into President Biden's term, but he was able to uh, to appoint his handpicked 
uh, leaders for both of those agencies. And it also could apply to an agency like the Social Security Administration, for instance. But the CFPB component was clearly the biggest, uh, the biggest one. Then there was a uh, a second circuit uh, decision that uh, I actually have to step back again. There's a lot of circuits that are at play in this. There was a <laughs> fifth circuit court of appeals uh, decision um, that held that the Supreme Court, uh, it, the, the, the court could find no basis in the Supreme Court's precedent for a decision that the Constitution does not support a Fifth Circuit ruling that declared the Bureau's funding source unconstitutional. So it's like another way to try and get potentially to the removal of the CFPB from the board. The, it's, its funding comes from the Federal Reserve as opposed to being directly decided by Congress. Uh, and the uh, the Fifth Circuit said that that's not appropriate. Then most recently, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals uh, which comprises the districts of Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. They decided a couple of weeks ago, back on March 23rd, that uh, the funding for the CFPB, oh wait, is actually constitutional. So there was a law case, there was a, there was a legal case brought between a law firm and the CFPB. Uh, the law firm was served with what's called a civil investigative demand by the CFPB over potential legal violations. And uh, the CFPB tried to enforce that CID in court a few years ago. Um, but then when the SELA law case came down that determined the funding source for the Bureau was unconstitutional, uh, that petition was in process. So this, uh, this legal firm basically tried to say, hey, there are some issues with the constitutionality of the Bureau. So we don't think the CID should be enforced because of a decision that the Supreme Court made. And now the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals says, no, 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 no. Uh, this is this is something where the CFPB is following the, uh, the, the way that things were laid down in its founding legislation uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. So we find that the CFPB's uh, funding source is constitutional. All of that to say, there is still uh, a decision that is hanging over the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau regarding its constitutionality, um, because in February, the Supreme Court agreed to hear arguments in a case uh, that will ultimately decide the constitutionality of the funding structure. And while the, the White House tried to get that expedited to be heard sooner, uh, the, the court decided that they're not going to actually hear it until their new term starts, which is in October. So at the very earliest that we could get a decision about the, the conceivably the final word on CFPB constitutionality, uh, barring other developments, will be at the beginning of 2024. So there's a lot of like interlocking webs when it comes to this. But ultimately, what needs to be taken away is that it is possible that the CFPB could be invalidated by the Supreme Court on grounds related to its funding structure. So whichever way the, C the Supreme Court will go, there could likely be some other filings and decisions and challenges on top of that. But Supreme Court generally has the last word. And considering the makeup of the Supreme Court, the likelihood appears to be that uh, the bureau itself could be in existential danger, but you know it still remains to be seen. This is a crazy long saga, and the interesting thing is, you know, why why do we not have this going on with HUD or FDIC or FHFA? And and there's the reason is because CFPB is 
pretty is is the new kid on the block, if you will, uh, created after the great financial crisis, as you said, with the Dodd-Frank Act. It was Elizabeth Warren's brainchild. Yep. And from the beginning, it acted and had a different culture than the other um, regulatory agencies. And it really wanted that. It, it really talked about, you know, it was like the one for the new ages. And um, they were they were attracting lots of um, young, bright people into it who, who kind of had a, a vision and a mission. Um, at the same time, uh, it's fair to say that the mortgage industry and maybe other parts of the financial ecosystem saw and see the CFPB as, you know, um, an adversary, right? It's an adversarial relationship, maybe more than some of the others, at least since um, since 2010, right? When it was founded, it, it's just it's from its beginning, it's been a very political agency because of Elizabeth Warren's, um, it's it's her brainchild, but also just the time of, of which it was born and why it came about. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out that you know since the financial crisis and its aftermath, in particular, politics have become more polarized. Generally speaking, I mean, you look at really any polls that try to take the temperature of voters and polarization has increased rather dramatically. So with that will come uh, stronger opinions, not just from voters, but from interest groups and from industries. But, um, you know, the CFPB in general, I think, yeah, the, you, you could probably describe the relationship that it has with the business it, businesses it regulates as somewhat adversarial. But, um, you know, you also just look at the evolution, like Elizabeth Warren, when the CFPB was first conceived, was more of an academic voice as opposed to a political one. And then, of course, she went on an entire metamorphosis, really, and now she's a sitting United States senator. So uh, that's that's an inherently political job that has to weigh the, the public interest versus uh, the political concerns that are in front of any elected leader and in, in front of any politician. So this is really kind of a moment of uh, growing pains, I think, is is fair to say, in terms of like the political consciousness and how it intertwines with the, the regulatory climate. But, um, you know, and the CFPB went through uh, a period of relative inactivity, I think is fair to, to say, during the Trump administration. And then now you're hearing about a lot of these moves that are being taken, not just from the CFPB itself, but these uh, these legislative or I'm sorry, these legal remedies that are being explored by businesses and other entities really since the beginning of the Biden administration. So uh, the the political calculus here is very, very visible, probably more visible than it's been over the past several years. That is a great point. I definitely think the whole climate has done that. And I also think we've had, you know, if you look at from the Obama administration to Trump and then back to Biden, I mean, we, we have some pretty different um, administration priorities and specifically on things that interact with the CFPB, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about banking laws right now, which were relaxed um, under the Trump administration. You know, Dodd-Frank uh, was, was enacted and, um, uh, you know, we really had the teeth of that come, come through in the Biden administration. You had a very, what we used to call very muscular CFPB. Um, under the Obama administration. And then, you know, to your point, it, it was a little bit, uh, you could definitely say it was it was quieter uh, during Trump's term there. So I do think it's just a very fascinating thing. I love politics. I know lots of people don't. But if you're in mortgage, like this does have 
real world, you know, implications, like what, what is going to happen here? They've already tried to say it's not constitutional on the way that the director is founded. Okay. We've, we've gotten, you know, we've, we've resolved that somewhat. So now they're going after the funding. And so it will be really interesting. But like you said, I mean, we've got kind of a long tail on this because it's not even going to be if the Supreme Court decides to hear it in October. Yeah. Well, and the first time that the Supreme Court heard the SELA law case, I think people were expecting that they would invalidate the existence of the entire agency. But the makeup of the court at the time did not go that far. So that could indicate that they are disinclined to invalidate an entire agency that has emerged, particularly since a very troubled economic period. But it's also hard to say because the makeup of the court has changed since the last time a decision regarding the CFPB was in front of them, particularly since the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now we have uh, Amy Coney Barrett taking her place, who was appointed by President Trump. So the, uh, the, the makeup of the court is, even though it's not all that different in terms of just the, the raw numbers, uh, a six to three conservative majority is, it could make a pretty big difference in the ultimate outcome of the case, but it remains to be seen. The Biden administration wanted the decision to come down sooner. The court declined to expedite the case. So we're going to be kind of on the, the hook waiting to see how this shakes out until the beginning of next year. Uh, and I'm sure in that entire intervening time, the Bureau is going to remain active as they have appeared to be under the, the guidance of Director Rohit Chopra. Yes. And, you know, let's turn to some of the stories that uh, we're talking about besides just like the structure of it and it itself, but like how it's interacting. So we have one story right now that you wrote about the Independent Community Bankers of America and 42 affiliated state banking associations. And what are they calling on the CFPB to do? They want them to approve language that allows community banks to test out different consumer construction and construction to permanent uh, loan disclosures. And uh, the ICBA says that that is a core offering of community banks in many local communities. So they basically believe that uh, there needs to be um, you know, more of these changes because construction lending has lagged. I think that we've seen that, especially in housing, you know, with a, a pretty big shortfall of, of necessary and needed housing units in a bunch of different states. But um, ICBA, uh, they say that they collaborated with bureau staff for over two years to develop modified disclosures under uh, the Truth in Lending Act and RESPA. So those are integrated into the TRID rules. And um, so the group has started uh, taking formal comments and they issued a joint letter to uh, the CFPB uh, to try and say that these changes would have benefits to both lenders and, uh, and consumers. So the proposed language would modify current loan estimate and closing date disclosures to include construction phase details, cost breakdowns, and some various other uh, disclosures that are related to construction to permanent loan, financing, and uh, they believe that streamlining TRID mortgage disclosure processes for single close and construction to perm loans could support proliferating those kinds of loans. It would also save time for lenders and uh, ideally create cost savings for consumers. That's what the ICBA says. Uh, I actually tried to reach out to the Bureau to see if I could get some, some comment on this, but they did not return my request. 
So, you know, we'll have to see how it comes out. But the fact that ICBA is paying attention to these kinds of issues and how it's all intertwined with the issues of uh, supply in the housing realm, I think that's of definite interest, certainly to Housing Wire's readers, but it's also of interest to anybody with a stake in the housing ecosystem in the United States. I also think there's a renewed focus or at least a, you know, a renewed interest in those medium-sized banks, right? With the recent banking crisis, kind of there's been a spotlight on like, yes, we know that the largest banks have these, you know, have these rules that really uh, mitigate their risk, but what's what's happening with these media, uh, medium-sized banks and community banks? And so I moved to Kansas last summer, and I will tell you that there is one large bank that's pretty prominent there. Um, the one that I was used to from Dallas did was not, they're not even anywhere. Uh, I think they have one location in the state and there are tons, tons of regional banks there and and then smaller banks. They're doing tons and tons of community lending, right? And lending for things just like you like you said, uh, we we bought a house with a small builder who goes through this local bank. Uh, so it's just interesting. I feel like just because anytime there's a banking crisis, we have this, you know, SVB, all that, there is a renewed focus and interest on like, how does this all work anyway? And, and who's in charge of this? And who's watching this? And so it's interesting. Um, in this case, it's really the ICBA petitioning them. And it seems like they've worked really closely with the CFPB to even come up with this potential change. I mean, they're not coming out of nowhere. They're, they've, they've worked with them. They've workshopped with them. So it seems likely that this would happen. Yeah. And it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty broad statement from ICBA if they have 42 state-affiliated agencies that are submitting these comments along to the CFPB. But to your point about community banks, and if I could put my reverse mortgage daily hat on for, for just a moment, you know, I talk to professionals throughout the reverse mortgage industry who have really tried to create firmer ties with community banks. And I think that the reasoning is just as clear for reverse as it is on the traditional mortgage side is that community banks have direct relationships with their with their clients and with their borrowers. So it makes a lot of sense to try and prioritize particular types of lending uh, from these institutions that have a more personal touch, not only with uh, with clients seeking general financing, but with smaller businesses. Uh, you know, small business leaders can forge relationships with leaders at community banks in ways that you don't see from larger lending institutions. And uh, so it makes a lot of sense that going to community banks would be a priority considering that uh, you know the, there's there's just more of a nurtured quality between uh, community banks and their clients. So that was one of the things that came to my mind uh, just in terms of a lot of the conversations that I've had with professionals on the reverse side. There is very little that these larger institutions can do to try and replicate the kind of interpersonal relationships that are developed between community bank professionals and borrowers or business owners in in local areas. I think that is a perfect segue to actually um, another story that you wrote about the CFPB where it issued its final rule on small business lending. So t- tell us how that um, how that affects our audience. Yeah, so the the particular mortgage focus that comes from this first to give a little bit of uh, a little bit of background. So the final rule on small business lending, according to the CFPB, 
is being fulfilled in conjunction with a mandate that was given to them from the U.S. Congress and is designed to try and increase transparency and mitigate discrimination. And discrimination mitigation is, of course, a noted and stated priority of the White House under the Biden administration. So the CFPB said that lenders will collect and report information about small business credit applications that they receive, including uh, data on the areas, data on the demographics of the people, uh, lending decisions, and the price of credit. And it's also going to work in concert with the Community Reinvestment Act or the CRA. And that's also, it's already something that requires financial institutions to meet the needs of the communities that they serve. So this new rule, it partially aligns small business lending standards with the lending standards that are already in place for the mortgage industry, including the requirement for lenders to submit certain data points required by Congress, in addition to data points that are already included in the lender files. And if you are a small business who is also a mortgage lender and you're going to be uh, seeking uh, you know, uh, something under these new small business lending rules, then one of the uh, things that this new rule does is it eliminates duplicative reporting requirements. So if loans are already reportable under the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, then they don't need to be reported again under this new small business lending rule. So that's really where the mortgage industry comes into play. And this goes back to Richard Cordray, who's the inaugural director of the CFPB, who left uh, in the, during the Trump administration. Uh, he noted in 2017 that small business lending requirements should mirror those of the mortgage industry uh, because uh, the mortgage industry's lending requirements are rather voluminous and detail-specific. So, uh, you know, aligning the broader small business lending environment with the environment that's already um, inhabited by the mortgage industry just seemed like a good idea. So this is really something that goes back roughly six years and uh, and they finally put it into practice very recently. I really like seeing that, you know, when it's like, hey, we've seen this work well in mortgage. Let's take that and, and you know, transport it to another part. I think that's really kudos to you know, you could you could say originally it's it's the structure that the CFPB put in place, but it's also what the mortgage industry did with it and what we can see with that. And this is one of my things. So like when it comes to regulation, of course, you know, we all know it, it's like that you need it, but it can just be it can just be so painful. Right. But <laughs> looking back. So when I, when I started at um, Housing Wire in 2013, we were right in the middle of so many of these implementations and it was so painful. But now, you know, when we had the SVB bank collapse, when we're looking at like, oh, what is the health of banks or like the fact that um, the mortgage industry is going through so much and our economy is going through so much over the last, you know, uh, nine months, we see the strength of some of those, uh, you know, laws that came into place after the great financial crisis. And the fact that especially you look at the mortgage, you know, the homeowners, they are rock solid. And why is that? Because we don't have the kind of credit standards that we had that led to the great financial crisis. We're part of that. Now we we just have, I mean, things are, it's a 30-year fixed debt. There's no exotic products that are going to, you know, tank whole banks, whole systems, whatever. And And you have to look back and go, you know, we should be. We should understand that that is what happened, and that was good. Even though some of that was extremely painful to you know the people in the mortgage industry. Absolutely, and I mean the CFPB also sees potential for this to 
uh, assist policymakers. They say that um, policymakers could measure the effectiveness uh, the effectiveness of any government programs and get more data to uh, find ways to affect how discrimination is uh, is playing a role in the the lending ecosystem. So, you know, we know through other uh, elements that the Biden administration and its HUD under Secretary Marsha Fudge has been pursuing that uh, combating discrimination, particularly in housing, is a key priority. And uh, there was a presidential executive order that came down, I think, within the first week that President Biden was in office that uh, asked for a bunch of different government agencies to coordinate their efforts as much as they could to try and combat discrimination. So there could be a little bit of crossover there in terms of the mandate that was given by President Biden when he first came into office. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, r- regulation is always going to be a double-edged sword. It certainly provides headaches for uh, people in the business in some cases, but it also could potentially lead to greater elements of trust in in clients and in borrowers. So uh, you know, I'll be interested to see how this unfolds over the next several months. But, um, you know, the CFPB has certainly demonstrated that they're taking a close look at ways that they might be able to to impact uh, the, the landscape when it comes to combating discrimination. The data collection, uh, really interesting. And uh, it's it's really hard to overstate the difference in now, say, in the last 10 years since mortgage lenders and others uh, in this ecosystem have had to streamline things to, you know, to meet these requirements, to meet the regulatory um, guidelines that they had and what that's done, you know, sort of the unintended consequence of that. uh, I'm sure there've been negative ones. We've reported on many of them. There have been a lot of positive ones as well. This has got to be one of them, which is we now have the ability to look at this from a national level and really understand it, um, sort it, and, and find the things that are wrong with it and also how we might be able to fix it. And so it's interesting for me, from a regulatory standpoint, I always want to be like, before we put any regulation in place, it, it would be great if we had an ROI, right? Like, how are we going to measure it? How do we know if this worked? How do we know if it's worth implementing? And in, in many ways, um, it feels like the government can do something like this without having the kind of, you know, measurements in place and metrics in place that a business would, right? Because like, who's going to, who are the stockholders who are going to come back and be like, you know, why did you spend our money doing that? That's, that would be us. That would be all the voters, but maybe we're not so good about that. Maybe we don't even, you know, realize what they're doing. But I do think that some of those um, things that they've done with especially the kind of uh, technology that different lenders had to implement to even just, you know, be able to fulfill the compliance requirements are now are, are was the foundation for so much of the automation that has changed the mortgage industry for the better and hopefully made us more resilient. Yeah. And I think that this is also something that demonstrates that the CFPB needs to make abundantly clear what the potential positive impact is going to be on business in the U.S. and on the, the people who those businesses serve. Because uh, about a month ago, uh, there was a, a hearing in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives subcommittee on, uh, it, it was the, the subcommittee on financial institutions and monetary policy, uh, talking about the need for the CFPB to be reformed. 
And, you know, since the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives, it's, uh, you know, Republicans who are driving uh, the agenda for for those subcommittee hearings. And uh, you have a lot of uh, Republican politicians as well as, um, you know, more right leaning organizations who are trying to basically bring attention to the idea that there are shortcomings that the CFPB needs to address. I think four of the five witnesses in that subcommittee hearing contended that the Bureau has operated outside the jurisdictional authority that was outlined in Dodd-Frank that helped establish CFPB, as we talked about. But, um, you know, the uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison from Minnesota was one of the witnesses who tried to uh, emphasize the positive difference that the CFPB has made in concert with other financial regulators within his state. And certainly Democrats are trying to um, to challenge the contentions that Republicans are making about the CFPB. But all of that is just to say that the additional attention and scrutiny that comes from a Republican House of Representatives will necessitate more, uh, I guess, documentation regarding what the CFPB intends to do and what it has already done. So conceivably, that could help to improve the quality of its uh, regulation, at least in a subjective sense. You know, it's going to change depending on who you talk to. But either way, I mean, there's a lot of eyes on the CFPB right now, whether you're talking from the legislative branch, whether you're talking from the judicial branch, certainly from the executive branch, uh, people are paying attention to what the CFPB is doing. So it's going to be very fascinating over the next several months to see how they conduct themselves ahead of the next Supreme Court decision. And we are certainly going to be keeping an eye on it, of course. We are. And, you know, we feel like it's one of our main jobs, too. It's like these, they, along with the other regulators, along with the other, you know, agencies in D.C., have a huge effect on the everyday um, business dealings, right, of the companies that are in our space, whether that's real estate, mortgage, title, appraisal. Appraisal itself, if we just want to look at appraisal and and how that has been challenged and changed and um, over this last year, and um, I reached out to the CF- CFPB several weeks ago to get some clarity uh, because they issued a joint statement uh, with the DOJ, a statement of interest um, on the uh, lawsuit that's going forward um, on appraisal bias. It's kind of complicated, right? But the the appraisal bias lawsuit, and they jumped in, which is pretty unusual, and really wanted to clarify that um, lenders are responsible uh, for any discrimination committed by a third party if they use that information in a loan decision, and that um, if they should have known that the um, appraisal was biased. And the question that we had was like, well, how are lenders supposed to know that? And so I, you know, I've sent them questions. I've asked for an interview. I've asked for clarifications. And what I've gotten back is like, here's a list of our blog posts. And I, you know, and I wrote them back. It was like, I understand the blog posts. I've read all of those. That's why I sent you questions clarifying this because we have people, you know, this is their business and they're trying to figure out if I'm a lender and I'm using a third party collecting this data, whether that's, um, third-party collecting data under the new uh, standards that Fannie Mae has, that's a whole separate issue. Or if it's an appraisal in the traditional sense, how am I as a lender supposed to know that that appraisal, uh, the appraiser was just, you know, had discrimination, had bias, and that the appraisal should not be trusted? And I think these are the kinds of questions that we're always asking that we wish there was more transparency from the CFPB to the people they serve, to the businesses that they're regulating, um, and to the press that, like us who are trying to get the clarification that people need because 
this is, you know, this is a really important issue. And and one of the knocks against the CFPB in the past has been like they do regulation by enforcement. They don't spell it out exactly. And Richard Cordray was very clear that that was on purpose. He didn't want to give too detailed uh, of regulations because then people could just figure out how to get around them. And so what people were left with was like, okay, this is, you know, this is this overarching thing. And then we're going to um, go after, you know, certain lenders who are do- or servicers who are doing it wrong, uh, which is, you know, just a really uncertain place for businesses to be. Yeah. And, you know, there's always going to be a component where when a new government regulatory agency is created, then it sort of becomes monolithic, right? It's difficult to get an abundance of clarity, as you just alluded to, especially if the intention is to formulate uh, its enforcement policies in such a way that it's kind of open to a broad form of interpretation. But at the same time, too, you know, considering that there are so many more eyes on the CFPB at the moment, considering the makeup of Congress and the highly polarized nature of our politics, as we already discussed, uh, you know, that could lead to some notable reforms. Uh, but in terms of just me doing my job and trying to reach out to these government agencies to get uh, context or perspective uh, on something that has to do with the businesses that are under the purview of Housing Wire, Real Trends, and Reverse Mortgage Daily, the CFPB generally is a little harder to to get some perspective from. So, uh, you know, it's just, it, it does make our jobs a little bit harder, but at the same time, you know, we can't ignore the the real impact that the bureau's decisions do have on these lending institutions and other associated businesses. So again, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how things unfold and uh, ultimately what the the final word is going to be from the Supreme Court and if that's going to lead to reforms or to for or to uh, to some other kinds of actions or potentially you know reformations on the part of the CFPB. Uh, but you know, it's going to lead to some pretty, uh, distinctive discussions, I think over the next several months leading up to the final decision. I I like that distinctive discussions. And, you know, (laughs) given our current environment, I'm not even saying like, oh yeah, this is definitely the time that we need any more disruption in like who's a regulator and who's not like if, if it was found unconstitutional, if, if something changed there, I mean, like nobody needs that either. So, I mean, we don't have a dog in this fight. We just are trying to make sure that, you know, we are giving the information that we need to. And with with everything else that's going on in this environment for um, lenders right now, it's not like we need any more disruption. So we will be, uh, even if even if in the past they might have thought, yeah, you know, let's let's see if this is really constitutional. I think right now it's like, please don't do not throw another wrench into this <laughs> business that we have. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate and appreciate all your reporting on these important topics. Of course, my pleasure, Sarah. Thanks for having me. calling all mortgage title and insurance leaders. With interest rates shutting down your refinance business, your relationship with your real estate partners is more important than ever. HW Media wants to help you deepen relationships and find success in this competitive purchase market by inviting you to attend Gathering of Eagles. Real Trends Gathering of Eagles is the real estate industry's premier event, bringing together leaders from the most successful brokerages in the country. For the first time ever, this closed event is open to our full audience. Check out the show notes to find out more or head over to realtrends.com to purchase your ticket today.
Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.